Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message entitled, About His Father's Business. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, 38 to 44, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Jesus was 12 years old, you know, and his frantic parents eventually found him in the temple sitting among the teachers of Israel, and they asked him why he had treated them in this way, and he answered, he said that he must be about his father's business. The answer that he gave at 12, that answer held throughout his life. There is in Jesus this remarkable consistency. His motivation for all his actions simply held steadfast. He never varied from his central motivation. You know, most of us have only a fainting glimpse of what that's like. Our motivations for our actions tend to change and vary either as time goes on or even on a moment-by-moment basis. So let me suggest an example. Imagine a couple who decide that a central motivation for them and how they deal with their money is to get out of debt. And then something happens. I mean, perhaps in the middle of winter, they decide, look, we need a vacation where it's warm. And so they book a trip on their credit card. I mean, one motivation, an immediate one, strongly felt, overwhelms their long-term motivation. Motivation and which motivations are ultimate and which are lesser, I mean, these things are not always easy to ascertain. Because of conflicting values, a great many of us have a difficult time settling matters. You know, goals that we've made are quickly subverted because something immediate overwhelms the long term. In the end, the couple I've described, the ones that wanted to get out of debt, uh, they were unable to hold a central guiding motivation that would lead to success. So contrast the misery of their condition with Jesus. At 12, he proclaims that the Father's business is his business. And I say that because without grasping that, we fail to see the reason why Jesus acts the way he does. And let me add here that joy is related to that You know, when we see the Father's will as a delight, because the Father himself is our delight, then to be about the Father's business is our greatest joy. But when the lesser joys seem ultimate, and we're constantly doing what Elijah the prophet told the people of Israel, when they vacillated between Baal and the Lord, he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? So let's consider Jesus in Capernaum. You know, as we've been studying here in the book of Luke, We've just read that Jesus has been preaching in the synagogue there, and the people were spellbound. They want to hear more. And furthermore, he's just cleansed a demoniac with a simple command. And with that, the people were more than prepared to follow him. And from the event in the synagogue, we move to what happened next. And that here I'm reading Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So up to now, in our study of Luke, we have not yet encountered Simon or any of the other men who become the disciples. So we're going to get to that in chapter 5. But for now, it appears that Peter or Simon lives in Capernaum. He is, as we will find, a fisherman. He's a local. No doubt he's been following Jesus. He's fascinated with him, and Jesus knows who he is. And Jesus leaves the synagogue on that Saturday, the Sabbath, and from there he goes to the house of Simon, who we now understand to be a married man. 
Well, that's not unusual. Men of his age were always married. Later, Paul writes about Peter's marital status, and he simply says, and here I'm reading 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as to the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And I mention this here so that we won't think that Peter as, you know, either a priest or as, you know, the first pope, Peter is married. And he was those three years when he followed Jesus, and he continued to be a married man as he led the early church. All the early church leaders were married. Paul said that he was the exception to the rule. In fact, if you will allow me, the Christian historian Eusebius said that Peter and his wife had children and that the wife of Peter was active in ministry to Christian women. So there you have it, even if you weren't asking for it. So let's get back to the scene. Simon is clearly a follower of Jesus, and it would seem that after the service in the synagogue, Jesus hears that Simon's mother-in-law is not just ill, she has a high fever. And our passage says that they, more than one person, appealed to Jesus on her behalf. So it appears this was no normal flu, but it was a level of illness that may have been life-threatening. And so Jesus goes to Peter's house, and Luke says Jesus is now standing over her, and then he does something. Well, it strikes me as strange. Instead of telling her to be healed, he rebukes the fever. And I say it's strange because in the last passage, we have Jesus rebuking the demon. And please understand, rebuking a demon, that makes sense, but, but how do you rebuke a fever? And there are some who have suggested that Jesus, you know, stuck in the ancient worldview, made no distinction between demons and disease, or that he thought, you know, all disease is a result of demons. Now, a clear reading of the words of Jesus in relationship to the sick, well, it belies that view. Yeah, in some cases, Jesus does make the connection between demons and disease, but in most cases, he does not. That is, Jesus in most cases did not believe that a disease was the result of a demon. And I could say a lot more about that, but that still leaves us with a question of the high fever in Peter's mother-in-law. And does the rebuking of the fever indicate that Jesus believes there was a nefarious reason for that fever? And I think the honest answer is we simply don't know because Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus rebuked the fever. That's all the information that we have. And look, when the Bible doesn't supply us with the answers we want, I'm afraid we're going to have to just let it lie. But I think it's important to remember that in most cases, the cause of disease is the result of simply living in a sin-cursed world, a world where disease and death stalk the entire human race. But that the Bible, although it is infrequent, yet sometimes it does indicate that there can be a direct connection either between a person's personal sin and sickness, or between demonic activity and sickness. So nonetheless, after Jesus rebukes the fever, the fever leaves her. And as we know, in most cases, when we recover from a fever, for some time after that, we're left feeling exhausted, and we need some time to recover our strength. But in this case, Jesus' mastery over the human body is so complete that the energy in Peter's mother-in-law is instantly restored. She goes from being bedridden, hovering between life and death, to instant vitality, so much so that she insists on making sure everyone's got something to eat. And as one might have expected, the word gets out. And that led to one of the most remarkable evenings in human history. The Son of God, one night, in one city, Capernaum, healed every single person there. Luke 4, verses 40 to 41. 
Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Notice that Jesus passed over no one. The passage said he laid hands on everyone. The city was bringing out every single person suffering from anything at all. On one glorious night in Capernaum, there was not a single person who had anything from cancer to the sniffles that was not healed. On one night, it was as if disease and death had simply melted away. It was as if the long-expected kingdom of God had shown up in Capernaum, even if it had shown up nowhere else. Here, even the demons were coming out of many, and the joy in the city was palpable. What were they to make of this? Notice before we move on that the demons were crying out as they are leaving that Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus rebukes them and shuts them up and wouldn't allow them to testify. Why won't Jesus allow that? Why hold this glorious truth back? Yeah, I know the demons are saying that in terror, but nonetheless, it is true. But Jesus won't allow the news to be made known, so why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons for that, but for one, if Jesus had claimed the title Son of God at this point in time in his ministry, there would have been an instant reprisal from the religious establishment. And we also know that in the future, when the crowd saw all that he was doing, they already wanted to make him king by force. But Jesus had come not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And because the Father had indicated to his Son, that the Son must preach the kingdom of God, and that eventually he was to be crucified in Jerusalem. The message that he was the Son of God would remain hidden for some point in time. Hence, the motivation of Jesus is front and center. He's come to announce the kingdom of God. He's come to show the day when the fall of man was coming to an end. But the end times would not arrive until Jesus provided atonement for the sins of people and until the gospel of forgiveness was preached. That was the Father's will. And even if excitement about Jesus was, you know, pouring through the streets of Capernaum, Jesus, in obedience to the Father, will not allow his identity to be announced. No, no, not yet. God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeld's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things, God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So, for this month only, we want to make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer ebooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
You would think that given Jesus' popularity in Capernaum, at least at that moment, that he'd build his ministry entirely there. But that's where the matter of motivation comes in. Luke 4, 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Notice that the very next day, that after that glorious previous day, from the sermon in the synagogue to the healing of Simon's mother-in-law to that glorious evening, what will Jesus do the next day? And when we don't know his motivation, what he does next is inexplicable. But when we do know his motivation, it all makes sense. He leaves quietly and goes to a desolate place. Those of us who know the ministry of Jesus will immediately recognize that was his pattern. Let's consider some examples. Matthew 14, 13 happens right after Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist. And that passage says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Or look at Luke 5, 16, but he would withdraw to a desolate places and pray. Or think of John eleven fifty four. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. See, Jesus knew that his prayer life could not be nurtured in the middle of the hustle and bustle of his ministry. As grand as it was, as alluring as were the voices of the crowds at that time, as they were singing his praises, he knew that it was far more important that he spend time with his father. And he also knew that he would not attend to this while he was in public. He was following his own advice. You'll remember it. It's in Matthew 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, of course, our place of prayer might not be in a secret room in our house. That was not Jesus' point here. But the place of prayer needed to be a quiet place where there were no prying eyes and where one didn't perform the act to be seen by others. See, in order to pray and to pray well, a person needed a place of quietness. The noise had to stop at least for a while. Prayer requires time to read scripture, to meditate. It needs time to consider one's own needs as well as the needs of others. It needs time to reorient the affections of our hearts, for our hearts in the heat of battle often cling to things that bring ruin. We need time to love what is lovely and to reject what is evil. And more than anything else, prayer needs the time to, again, reorient the soul to the pleasures of God. To find our ultimate joy in God is to pray well. Listen to what David said, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. I mean, you can't help but stop and think that this activity was front and center for Jesus. And when one does what Jesus did, it really is amazing how the things that we seem to care about so much take their proper place in the hierarchy of what we think is important. We're taken back to the temptation of Jesus. He's in the wilderness. The devil is attempting to entice him to bow down and worship him. And and Jesus responds, you'll remember with words from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Indeed, we might think that 
after the day that Jesus has had in Capernaum, that he might have wanted to worship or to find ultimate joy in the adulation of the crowds. I think it's helpful here. I'm going to use myself as an example. Now, there was a time in my own pastoral life when I pastored a church that grew beyond all bounds and when all men and women were speaking my praises. And after I'd done that, I'd wondered whether I wanted to do it again. I'm in a fairly large church, and a leadership that spoke to me described their church. And from their perspective, they said, you know, come to our church now. Do what you did before. Why not ride the wave of popularity again? Why not revel in that? You know, in my time of prayer and sorting out perspectives, I made a decision instead to step behind, you know, a microphone as I have it here at Back to the Bible Canada. And let me explain the situation from my perspective. I'm in a studio alone. No crowds, no immediate response. You know, in my early days behind this microphone, I had a wonderful revelation. I had no idea how many people actually listened, and I had time to think about that. And I told the Lord, listen, if no one listens to me, I'm content to prepare and do Bible teaching simply for you, Lord, to be delighted in you and to press into the Word, and no other reason. And that activity brought perspective to my life, and I needed it. And I mention that because it seems to me Jesus was not afraid of the crowds, but he knew he could not minister there unless he found his perspective in the delight of the Lord. Every pastor has to think about those things, and the rest of us need to do it as well. Do you worship the praise of others, or do you worship the one who alone fills your soul with delight? You've got to answer that question, and Jesus did. Now back to the text in Luke. It's the next day after Sabbath. It's Sunday, the first day in the Jewish calendar of the work week. Jesus is nowhere to be found. Luke then says the people sought him, and I suspect that must mean that there were some key people from Capernaum that were asking around. They were checking with contacts that they had had in other places, and they were reporting back, and everyone's listening. I mean, wherever he's gone, we need to go there, and we need to get him back. That's the nature of the enthusiasm for him. You know, these are heady things. And eventually, Luke says, someone found out where he was, and in no time, a great crowd was there, and they're urging him, come back, we love you. You know, we believe in your message. And whatever else you have to teach us, we're going to be listening. Capernaum will become known as your city. Now, we've been talking about motivation. And notice Jesus explains the motivation to the crowds. He doesn't say, well, you know, I think in order to expand my ministry, I've got to have a strategy of preaching in other towns as well. But he doesn't actually say that, and that's puzzling because anyone who's ever studied the ministry of Jesus will point out that he does indeed have a sound strategy. He begins in Galilee. He builds his popularity. He gradually makes his way to Jerusalem. That's sound strategy. Well, that might be true, but notice that's not what motivates him. First, notice what Jesus says he must do. He says he must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns. But let's take it one step at a time. He must preach. That's the first thing. Now, I've seen a great many studies about the life of Jesus. I've rarely seen a study of the life of Jesus from the perspective of Jesus the preacher. But clearly, Jesus thought of himself as the preacher. That was God's call on his life. The next is that not only has God mandated that Jesus must preach, but he also mandates the content of what he must preach. It's not a word about miracles or a healing or how to encourage discouraged people. No, no. He must preach the message of the kingdom of God. 
that God is breaking in, destroying evil, and beginning the great end-time reign, that's the message that Jesus must preach. And then Jesus adds, he must preach this message to the other towns. It's not appropriate that all his preaching happens in Capernaum. So notice, not only does Jesus know what the Father wants him to do, he must preach, but he knows the content of what the Father wants him to do, and he knows the places where the Father wants him to do that. And so in consequence, says Luke, Jesus was preaching in the synagogues in Judea. Now, Judea, that sounds surprising because isn't he in Galilee? But Luke uses the word Judea to speak about the entire land of the Jews. He is saying that Jesus is eventually going to preach the message of the kingdom in all of the synagogues in all of the land. What was done in Capernaum needs to be repeated until all of Israel hears the news of the kingdom and that the great king has arrived. And all Israel needs to confess their sins and come to their Messiah for mercy. That was the ministry of Jesus, and regardless of how a crowd in one city might adore him, he would not stay for one reason. And that one reason was that the Father had a mission for him, and Jesus said, I must be about my Father's business. None of us today has the ministry of Jesus. I know that. You and I are not the Messiah. We're not going to raise the dead or calm the storm. But on this point, we must learn from our Lord. When we examine our own personal motivation for what we do, we must answer the question, what motivates us? May it be this, that we have found such joy in the Lord that we must be about his business. Thanks, John. You know, I'm wondering, how do you personally ensure that your motives are in tune with Christ? Ben, I I mistrust all my motives. I mistrust them because I find how easy it is for me to lie to myself and how easy it is to play on my own deceit. And so I don't trust my motives at all. However, I must continually go to the Lord and say, search me and try me to see if there is any wicked way in me. Reveal it to me so that I will have the privilege of renouncing it, repenting of it, and turning to you. Uh, Only through repeated repentance and asking of the power of the Holy Spirit are we able to come to terms with that. That's an excellent question, Ben. It's something that we all need to struggle with constantly. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Luke, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Want to receive all the latest from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, directly to your inbox? Want to be the first to know of all the upcoming ministry events and initiatives? Then be sure to subscribe to our email list to receive our daily audio mail and monthly update emails. Every weekday, you'll receive an email containing links to all the newest audio messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt and each month you'll receive the ministry update email containing exclusive first look insights and special ministry features. To subscribe, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the homepage, you'll find the sign up form. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 
And if you're able, please consider a gift to help ensure all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, all of its resources, continue to be made available across this country.